All living things, with the exception of clones and genetically engineered corn and soybeans, are unique. Of course, that includes children. Every kid has a collection of traits, quirks, interests, annoying habits, talents and abilities that makes him or her truly special. That's why education should be special for every child. But it's not. Far from it. Despite the everyone turn to page 57 on your math book approach to learning that is so 20th century and still going strong, typical children will muddle through their K-12 years and come out the other end having succeeded to one degree or another. But for the millions of special needs kids who are entitled by law to receive truly special education, many are being grossly shortchanged. Life-threatening state budget cuts aside, the crux of the problem is sometimes in the approach of educators who prejudge a child's ultimate learning potential and design programs based on what the special needs student can't do rather than acknowledging what he or she may not be able to do yet. All kids need parents to advocate for them. Special needs kids need especially loud and pushy parents to go to bat for them at school and help them get what they require to succeed. I'm Annie Fox, and this is Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. Today's show, Advocating for Your Special Needs Child. My guest today is Robert Rummel Hudson, author of Skylar's Monster, A Father's Journey with His Wordless Daughter. This book tells the story of raising a little girl with a disability and learning to become the father she needs. Rob Rummel Hudson has been writing online since 1995, which in internet years is an impressively long stretch. During those years, his work has been recognized by the Diarist Awards and has been featured in articles in various newspapers, including Austin Chronicle, The Irish Times, and The New Haven Register. Rob was the keynote speaker at the 2009 Texas Speech-Language Hearing Association Convention in Austin. Welcome, Rob. Hello. I'm so glad you're here. I'm really appreciative of your time. I know that you're on a book tour and the fact that you are giving me an opportunity to talk with you in depth about this amazing book, Skylar's Monster. I'm, I'm most appreciative. This is such a love letter to your daughter. So, thanks. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I was first drawn to this book by the cover, and I wanted to ask you, did you take this wonderful photograph of Skylar? I did, and the funny thing about that picture, it was a complete accident. It, it almost looks very posed and very set up and I had taken her out we have a little duck pond next to our apartment complex and I had taken her out to uh, take pictures because she was all dressed up to go see Santa Claus and so we were out getting pictures in her her little dress and I think I probably took about 200 pictures that were you know the very kind of stiff posed smile for grandma type pictures and at some point I made some little joke that cracked her up and she she laughed behind her hand, and I just took the picture. And I, did, I don't think I even realized that I had taken it. 
<laughs> until later when I was going through and looking through these, these, these files and files of, of identical posed awful pictures. And right in the middle, there was just this one picture of her laughing behind her hand. And when um, when my publishers, when St. Martin's asked for me to submit pictures, I submitted like 40 pictures. And that was the first one that they saw. And that was it. Was that was it? <laughs> as soon as I saw the picture, they thought that's that's exactly what we want. So. Well, it's it's perfect because first of all, she's looking right at the camera, and you could see how much she loves you. <laughs> And how amusing I am to a, a seven-year-old. Well, I'm sure you are riotous. In fact, reading reading your book, um, I cracked up many, many times. I, I think you and I have a similar sense of humor. It's a little bit, it's a little bit warped. Um, which brings me to what this book is about. For me, is it's all about communication, which I thought was really interesting. How many different dyads of communication we're talking about here. There's, of course, there's you and Julie. There's there's you and Skylar. There's you and the doctors and the whole medical establishment. There's you and your blog readers. There's you and the school system. There's you and the talking box tech people. And all of this is done because you want to help Skylar communicate with the world. Absolutely. And it was funny. I mean, the whole thing that drove all of this from the very beginning was just my, or our absolute certainty that she had something to communicate, that she had something to say. And watching her, almost like she was waiting, she was just waiting to be handed whatever kind of tools and whatever whatever doors that needed to be open for her. So, I mean, it, so much of this was just about giving her the opportunity to, to communicate and say the things that were going on inside of her head. Let's talk a little bit about the history of your communication with the monster because there's that part of it too and if you could explain to our our readers the subtitle of of this book explains it a little bit but it's called Skylar's Monster a father's journey with his wordless daughter tell us about the monster and how you first got to know it when um when Skylar was about three years old she was diagnosed with after after about two years of, of just all sorts of different kinds of testing and evaluations. Um, she was diagnosed with a very rare brain disorder um, called polymicrogyria. And at the time that she was diagnosed, there were actually probably about 100 diagnosed, identified cases worldwide. So it was incredibly rare. It was, it was just at the very beginning of, of, of really being understood. And she had been, the issue had initially began when she was about a year and a half old, her, her pediatrician started asking us questions about was Skylar, was she trying to talk, was she trying to put words together, and she really wasn't. Um, and I think as new parents, we were unaware, <laughs> this is, this is, it seems silly now, but we were unaware that at a year and a half old, you should, you should be talking. I think the things that take parents by surprise, like their kid starting to put together words, we had just... It never occurred to us that we were really missing anything there. Mm -hmm. um, but once she was diagnosed, then we had a little bit clearer idea of what of what to expect. Um, now, she has dodged a lot of the, the worst aspects of polymicrogyria. Um, there are kids who suffer from this. Some of them suffer from, from very serious uh, seizures. In fact, most of them do. She's she so far has has, has dodged that bullet, I, and it's you know, and it's the funny thing. It's one of those things that, she, I mean, she knows about it. We've talked about it, but she I don't think she ever thinks about it. And it's one of those things that kind of hangs over our heads, mm -hmm. you know. And as parents, you almost feel guilty if you forget 
that that possibility is out there. But it's something that she's dodged so far. Um, there are all sorts of um, developmental swallowing issues, um, um, cognitive issues, and it looks like most of that she has managed to dodge. For Skylar, the, the main issue with, with her polymicrogyria has been her, her lack of speech. So in some ways, she's, I don't know, one of the, the luckiest of the unlucky in the sense that she's that her issues have really been focused in this one area because I've I've heard from so many parents who have who have children with this with this disorder, and and the stories are just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. So I, I never lose sight of the fact that while she's obviously she's got this monster to tangle with, it could be, you know, the difference between like Cookie Monster and Godzilla. You know, she she could have things a lot more serious to deal with. Yeah, I hear you. And your connection on the internet in terms of your your blog readers and also the enormous amount of research you did on and all aspects of this i just think you know had this this condition been known you know 10 years ago or 15 years ago what would parents have done and it's also strikes me as the kind of situation where if you're educated and and you know where to look for resources to get your questions answered then you're less in the dark and more empowered with the information that you get. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's funny because I think about that sometimes. I think about it because now we're looking at probably maybe a, about a thousand cases identified worldwide. So it's still very, very rare. Are there, wait, hold on a second. Are there more cases now than there were 10 years ago or, or is just are people now identifying them more specifically? Oh, I think it's definitely a, a, a case of them being identified. It's a very, it's a very hard disorder to, to catch. It requires like an MRI or a CT scan. So, and that's really at this point the only way to identify it. I think they're they're still trying to identify some of the genetic markers so that they can identify uh, in utero. But it's still it's it's you know it's a situation where you for whatever reason are are putting a a, a child or even an infant. You know, through the whole process of getting an MRI or a, or a CAT scan, so I think it, it's it's more of an identification issue. I, I certainly don't think that the, that it's uh, you know it's increasing. And the thing is, I with the, with it being so difficult to identify, I can't imagine that that you know even if there are a thousand cases or or ten thousand cases identified, I think about kids in third world countries kids who, for whatever reason, don't have the kind of resources that they can get something as, as, as advanced and as expensive as an MRI. So I suspect that there are a lot of kids in the world who have a lot of these, these issues, and they just haven't been identified. So, so what are their parents dealing with in terms of the unknown and the emotion? Can you tell us a bit about how you and Julie felt before you had the diagnosis? Well, it's, it's difficult. I think... And it's something that I see so many parents going through, um, either parents who are just getting a diagnosis for whatever kind of disorder or they're still looking for that. It's hard because you want, and I think this, this may be primarily a father issue. I don't know. I don't, I don't like to hang too much on the idea of fathers do this and mothers do this. But I think a lot of fathers, the thing that I've heard over and over again is that it's frustrating because I think typically, socially, I think Fathers want to try and fix things. A problem comes along, and we want we we see a problem as something to be fixed, rather than something to be um, accommodated or something to be negotiated with. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of parents, that there's that frustration at not being able to identify the problem. And there are so many kids who have 
all sorts of disorders that are just they don't they're not easily identified they're not they don't fall under you know there's there's not a genetic marker there's not a test that can be taken it's something that has to be sort of investigated and, and ferreted out and that can really really weigh on parents and can really if you're not careful or even if you are careful it can really erode at that sort of the foundation that your 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 family and your relationship is built on so in a lot of ways that that period of frustration and and just trying to find an answer that really can be the worst part it really can be the worst part for families and for for just keeping everything together well you were quite honest in the book when you talked about the tension that was was brewing between you and Julie during during a lot of this, these early years when it felt that um, you were at odds with each other, that it, it sounded to me as I was reading it that both of you were almost isolated in your own thoughts and fears about Schuyler's condition and that the communication between you, had the two of you had broken down. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the numbers, you know, the statistics show that that is a real danger for families with kids with disabilities. Um, the number that I always hear, and I've, it's it's so difficult to actually track down the, the solid research, but the number everyone everyone seems to have heard is the idea that 85% of couples with children with disabilities end up splitting up. Wow. And that number will go even higher if there's a, if there's a death involved. <sighs> and and it's and and the thing is, everyone when I when I talk to people about that, I've never had anyone say, "Yeah, that that number sounds wrong. That number sounds way too high." Anecdotally, people people identify with that because it, it is difficult. I think you you feel like if you're in that situation, your spouse should be the person who's who's best able to to stand there with you and to understand and and to be a part of that. I think. It is very easy to get very lost inside your own self and inside your own head, and you look across the table and you see someone who's just as as sad and broken and frustrated as you are, and I don't know, maybe it's it's almost like you resent them <laughs> for for not for not being able to be more for you, you know. So I, it's very easy when you're in that same situation to to really get lost in it. And I can only imagine what it what it's like for for families that have other children too. That's mm-hmm. not something we've ever had to deal with, but right. I'm sure it's even worse. And and I was struck by how you and Julie were making a conscious effort to keep it together when Skylar was around. Yeah, and I th- I, th- I think we've always, and of course this is probably futile in in, in some in some way, but I, th- I think we always wanted to spare her the anxiety that we were feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if we thought that we were actually sparing her that anxiety or if just on her own, in her own way, she was just rejecting it. Because now that she's older, I, I still see a lot of that. She will let, if, if things get frustrating or, or, or just, you know, the day-to-day things that, that set people off, she will ask, are you okay? Are you okay? But she, she doesn't she doesn't seem to take that worry on for herself. And I, and I suspect on some level she was always not so much being protected from our anxiety, but just sort of rejecting it. Which I think is actually uh, that would be a great way to live. <laughs> you know, I, I see Skylar and I think, well, I would love to be like that. I would love to have that ability. But I agree, it's very healthy, and in a way, it, it's she knows. Look, why should I get involved in this stuff? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be helping it at all. And and maybe in fact, she was modeling a certain objectivity about it, which is like, okay, if this is what you guys want to do. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going there. <laughs> it's like having this little Buddha in the house. Exactly. Just, 
you, you guys you guys freak out and whenever you're done I, I'd like to watch Spongebob please I, I, have, I have no time for your for your tragedy so and, and you know and that hasn't changed and I suspect when she's when I'm a you know bitter old man and have all my old man issues she's still going to be like okay well call me when you're done I'll take you to bingo but I I have no use for that now now, in terms of the solidarity, solidarity, the way you spoke about it in the book, when you and Julie were, I'll say, doing battle with some of the school districts and the special ed programs within them, I really saw you guys coming together and and um, supporting each other in a really wonderful way. And I, I'd, I'd love to have you tell our listeners a bit about some of the battles that you were doing with the special ed placement, because I think that's something that no matter what a child is dealing with in terms of their special ed needs, all parents can relate to this. Well, sometimes I think I should contact some of those teachers and thank them <laughs> in some way because because if anything brought us back together, it was it was having that that sort of common task ahead of us. So, ironically, you know, perhaps they perhaps they saved our marriage. I don't know. Um, it's it's difficult because there are so many issues that whenever you're bringing a child into a special education system and a special education classroom, there are so many issues and so many struggles that are in place even before you get there. Just as far as as training and, and, and the, the teaching staff and, and the budgets, which is, I mean, there's, there's, there's no end to, to the budget issues. I mean, special education can be a very, very expensive thing to, to, to try and do successfully. I think if I were to identify the one issue that came up again and again, it would be the times that we felt like Skylar was being dramatically underestimated, that, that her capabilities were 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 being she was being shortchanged and I've I've always thought about just the, just a basic simple idea forget about all the advanced therapies and all the advanced theories of how this should go if you could just shift one thing in 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 special education and in, and really in education in general to go from asking or from saying we're going to identify what your child cannot do to simply changing that that basic philosophy to let's see what's possible let's let's push this as far as we can give your child as many opportunities and give and get and give the child a, a, a chance to to fail really and, and not and not to try and identify the things that we can't do but just to just to put it out there and say here's the open road and there were so many times i mean if if, if i were to go back and look at, at skyler's initial special education reports i would see how she was not expected to be able to write or to be able to read even and that that you know some of the some of the things that we could look forward to would be her in these sort of general life skills special education classes and not believing that and not accepting that i mean you know i'm i'm not a smart guy <laughs> you know i was a i was i was i was not prepared for this i was a music major in college i wasn't you know i i had never gone through anything that had certainly had trained me or put me in a position where i thought i, I was ready to deal with this all i had was just this almost this this certainty that there was more that that skylar could do and that she was that she was really capable of of, of achieving whatever she wanted to and that we were the ones failing her and and I see in special education so much just this this idea of identifying limits. Where do you think that comes from? Because certainly people who choose to go into special education are more than well-intentioned. They're 
angelic in some ways. They, oh, they have incredible patience and they love the kids and they, they want the kids to achieve their highest potential. So why do you think this um, kind of turned on its head philosophy, let's, let's first focus on what you can't do, is, is in place there? Well, first of all, I think that the, it, the pressures that are put on special educators in this country are just tremendous. And I can't, and this is, it's heartbreaking to see special educators that have become jaded, have become sort of broken in the profession. And, and, and I, understand, I understand how that happens. I mean, you see that with reg- regular education. You see that with, with teachers who, who go into the system. You know, they're young and they're idealistic and they want to change the world. And, and it doesn't take long for that to sort of get beaten out of them just by the just all the different pressures and all the things that have nothing to do with teaching. Um, yeah, that is, that is actually an excellent question of where that comes from. I think I think the love and that, that sort of dedication to these kids can, can, if you're not careful, can actually work against you. I understand the idea that I don't want to see Skylar fail. And I understand, I mean, her teachers love her and they've always loved her. Every teacher, even the ones that, that we felt like had, had were totally off track with her. I know that they really wanted to help her and they really they cared for her and they even loved her. And I think loving a kid like Skylar means not wanting them to fail, not wanting to see them stumble. And you have to get past that. You have to, 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 to get to the point where you can say, okay, if there are limits, the way to find those limits is to, is to let let your child find them and 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 maybe initially not be able to overcome them. You know, one of the things that we see with Skylar again and again, and this is a lesson I have to relearn constantly, is that if she runs into something that she can't do, the the best solution for that is just to wait and let her get mad and let her get frustrated and then see what she does. Can you give us an example? Oh, I have a perfect example because it was it was a recent example. Um, and I know every every state has the uh, no child left behind testing, and in in Texas it's a test called the uh, the tax, which is Texas assessment of of uh, <laughs> something or other. <laughs> yeah, it's it's basically it's, it's assessing skills and and whatnot. And there are there are certain points where if you don't pass this test, you can't go into the next grade. And it's the kind of thing that it's you know it's the just the standardized testing that that schools freak out about and they freak out about it all year long and it's this big horrible thing and I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure any teacher who's listening to this is is getting that that twitch in their eye just just for me bringing it up and there are accommodations for special education kids but those accommodations can be you know it's it's kind of a one-size-fits-all approach and it's 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 I would say it's controversial except I've never heard, I've never spoken to anyone who's like, no, I think these tests are great and they work out perfectly for, for special needs kids. So she had taken a practice version of this test along with all her classmates in her in her special ed class and she, she just failed it miserably. They all did. It was a it was it was a just kind of a disaster. And the teachers had told us about this and they were like, you know, it just doesn't work with these kids and so we're gonna work around it and everything will be fine. And I had actually written about this on my blog. I, this long, very sanctimonious, why this isn't right, these, these kids can't do this, and very impassioned about why these tests were unfair to special ed kids and, and the things that we needed to do to, 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 to do that differently. And the only problem with that was she passed the test. <laughs> <laughs> she she took this test and she passed it and I had to go back and and write another thing that was like well you know I still believe that this this testing is is difficult for these kids and but the thing I didn't I didn't take into account is that she would just get she would just get ticked off and would be would, would step up and knock it out of the park 
<laughs> and that and, and that was a case that was an instance where Julie and I who are who who are and who should be her greatest advocates and should always be saying there's nothing she can't do. She wants to fly, she's going to fly. That we had underestimated her and and she it, it was a nice reminder that the, sometimes the best thing that I can do for Skylar and the best thing that anyone can do for her is just to get out of her way because she she will see a goal and she'll she'll tackle it one way or the other. Interesting. Um, that is a good lesson. That's a, that's a good lesson for for parents of and of all children. I mean, all parents should be willing to um, see with open eyes and an open heart what their kids are capable of. And let them do it. I think there's a lot of scaffolding going on with parents and kids often that, um, oh, well, we don't want to push them too hard. Or the idea that if they don't measure up to some communal value here that they're never going to make it. I mean, kids have their own timetable and it's it's impossible to say to compare any two children even two children in the same family for sure i wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about some people that you felt very strongly about in the book as you described almost their hmm, i want to be diplomatic here but it (laughs) almost felt like an agenda to undermine and specifically i'm talking about the the special ed teachers who were turning off Skylar's device or putting it mm-hmm. on mute or, or giving you all kinds of grief when you were trying to order an upgraded model of it and they said, oh, no, 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 she could never handle that. Could you tell us right. about that? Well, you know, and it's, it's funny because I, I look back on that and I, and I, and I try to understand. First of all, let me say that I, when I put that in the book, I really hoped it would be shocking and would be, you know. I was shocked. <laughs> and, and, and I think it should be shocking. I go back and I read it, and I get mad all over again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to get in the car and drive down and say, you know what, my kid's doing just great. And yeah. you, you need to reevaluate your position. But it's funny. I, I spoke at a uh, speech-language um, conference uh, a couple of months ago, and I gave a keynote address to about 2,500 people, which was terrifying. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, and I and I told that story. And it was funny because you could hear when I told that story, you could hear this sort of murmur, this murmur, this angry thing going through the crowd. And I thought, well, there you go. I shocked them. But when I talked to people afterwards, it was the opposite. Oh, they weren't was, commiserating if, with you? If, if, well, if I could have seen them, what I would have seen was people nodding and people saying, yeah, I know how that goes. Because people I talked to afterwards, they were like, you know, that part, that part really got to me. Because, and then they would start to relate a similar story of... Someone who either they didn't understand the technology, they didn't want to, 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 to face all the extra training or all the things that they would need to go through. And so that they, they would do things to undermine. And not because they were bad people. It was because they didn't understand how important it was. You know, for, for Skylar, this is her voice. This is, this is the thing that, this is how she will communicate. And, or at least it's part of how she communicates. And if you look at it that way, then the idea of turning that device off in a classroom, if she had gone to, when she first started using the device, she went into a class, it was a summer school class, it was a teacher she hadn't dealt with before, and the teacher found the, the, the device to be distracting. And her solution was to, was to remove the device or to mute the device to turn it off. And it wasn't because she was, you know, sitting there 
thinking up villainous ways to, to, to obstruct her kids. He was like twirling her little mustache. And <laughs> it was because in her mind, she didn't understand what the device represented. And, and there's still, you know, this isn't, this isn't terribly new technology. It, it seems like it is, and it's getting a lot of a lot of attention as as, as sort of new new technical advances are made. This technology has been around for decades. I mean, you look at at um, Stephen Hawking, mm-hmm. who's using a very similar. I mean, he's basically using the, the same kind of technology, and and that's been around for what thirty years at least, maybe longer. So, but just the understanding of this is how. A person who does not have verbal communication, this is a way for them to verbally express themselves as a voice. And the, you know, the point that I always made to her teachers was, if she's speaking out of turn in class with the device, punish her. Punish her like you would punish any other child in, in your class. If, you had a, if, if the kid sitting next to her is mouthing off in class and speaking out of turn, you're not going to walk over to him and, and you know, with a roll of duct tape and, and quiet him that way as much as you may want to. Right? <laughs> I've, I certainly have been there before, you, but, you know. You and you treat you treat a, a child who's using using a, a assistive technology the same way you would treat any other kid. But I think when we ran into these these impediments, that was that was part of that. Now, as far as her getting the the technology, the, the, the equipment that she needed, so much of that is about just funding and schools being able to really afford to provide. You know, the assistance that these kids need. This, you know, you know something like a, a, an assistive technology, a speech device, can be mandated, certainly. But if, if that doesn't mean that it's, it's going to be paid for, that the resources to cover that are going to be in place. So I understand that schools are, 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 are in kind of a hard place. Yes, we have to help this child. Yes, this will help this child. Here's our budget. And I just don't know where that's going to come from. And, and, and I certainly sympathize with that. My perspective as a teacher almost has to be that that's not my problem. And that, I mean, as a, as a parent, I, I also have to look at it as I understand that that's a big problem, but at the same time, you know, my job advocating for Skylar means that that's got to be someone else's problem. Although in the end, ultimately, it became our problem, and that's that's how we dealt with it. So the the idea of advocacy, I think, is is a key one here for any parent who is is getting some pushback from the system when they oh, feel. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the thing is, when you go into those meetings, I've talked to a lot of parents who have these um, these meetings where they go in, um, what they call the IEP meetings, the Individualized Education Plan uh, meetings, where they where they will set up for a child with a disability, they will set up a, a curriculum and a program specifically to meet that child's needs. And those those meetings can be very contentious. I mean, I've talked to so many parents who are like, yeah, my next stop after this meeting is, uh, I'm going straight to the bar, because this is, this is awful. These meetings can be a real beating. I think when you go into that meeting understanding everybody's roles, it becomes easier. When you understand that from the school's perspective, I mean, everyone wants the same thing in the end, but from the school's perspective, they have, here's our budget, here are the kids that we have right. to, to, to assist. And, I mean, it, it seems kind of harsh to put it this way, but they, they can help more kids by giving your kid less in resources. Mm-hmm. And... And if you understand that that's the perspective that they're coming from, that helps tremendously. At the same time, they have to understand that as a parent, you are there to advocate for your child. And while it's not like I'm saying, well, I don't care about these other kids. I just I want as much as I can for mine. And, it, and it's not a matter of caring, but it's a matter of what your role as that child's advocate is. And as long as the schools understand that you're going in with this very narrow, very focused idea of what needs to happen, 
then as long as everyone understands their roles, then that's where you find that middle ground, and that's where you find that that place where, you know, I understand what you're trying to do, you understand what I'm trying to do, and somewhere in the middle there's something that we can live with. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, the, the funding for special education in this country is always going to be an issue, and it's something that every administration says they're going to, going to, to, uh, to address. You know, everyone's, everyone, everyone in special special education, special needs, and disability are looking very closely at the Obama administra- administration to see what they're going to do. And the early indications are very encouraging, but you know we've 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 all learned in a very nonpartisan way <laughs> to be disappointed in our in our in our in our leaders. So have you have you sent this book to the Obama administration's people who are in charge of education? I really should, shouldn't you I? You totally <laughs> should. Who's the Secretary of Education? Oh, I really should know that, shouldn't I? <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't a trip up question, Rob. But really, you, oh, no, should, you should that send was the, the book. Question. <laughs> you should send the book. Do it. And I know that the president has also appointed a, spe- a special liaison uh, for disability as well. Who actually, I, I believe he's he, I believe he's blind or he has a, a, a sight deficit. So there is yeah, those are good indications. That's, maybe one day I'll turn on the television and he'll be carrying my book. Wouldn't that Air be Force. terrific? You'd be you'd be <laughs> so happy. All this stuff was really helping kids all over the place. I would like you to talk just a little bit about these AAC devices, also known as alternative and augmentative communication devices because in reading about the transformation in Skylar's ability to communicate and putting this tool in her hands it seemed like it seemed like the miracle worker uh, the, the the play about Helen Keller where all of a sudden she had language and an ability right. to communicate it connected her with the world so um, tell us a little bit about about these AAC devices please well, Skylar's device, um, and it's produced by a company in Ohio called the Prinky Romich Company. There are a number of companies who are doing similar kind of work. Um, I like what Prinky Romich does because they have, they approach language in a slightly different way of, of in, instead of just giving them words to speak, actually kind of guiding guiding the user through the creation of language. So it helps to teach her how language works. Um, it's a device. It's pretty small. It's smaller than a laptop. It has a touch screen. On that screen, it will show uh, icons and words. And as you as you as you touch these these icons, it will put the, it'll assemble the sentences and the phrases that that you need, and then will actually speak those phrases for you. Um, and in Skylar's case, it will actually as she as she like if she's saying I I I want to eat a banana, then it will guide her through. So she says I want to eat. As soon as she hits the the little eat icon, everything changes. She gets a whole new set of subdirectories that show breakfast, lunch, dinner. will show her all these different choices and things that can be added in and whatnot. When, when she assembles her sentence, she can touch a little area at the top of the screen, and it will actually speak the sentence for her. Hey, does it does it serve up the food? <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. That, that, I think the, the next step is the one that does it all. Chocolate crepes, please. <laughs> oh, we would have one fat little kid if that were the case. Is uh, the, the, the amount of times that we say no to the ice cream request is really kind of daunting. Um, but and, and and the nice thing about it is it actually speaks. I, I brought up Stephen Hawking before, and I think people when they think about things like assistive technology they think oh it's the robot voice it's that it's a little weird to think of this little this little kid with this robotic voice and the reality is the voices are becoming more and more natural sounding and she can adjust those voices she actually got a new device recently and it has new voices including some with british accents i I thought i could send her to school with her little british accent so although oddly enough the british accent mispronounced skylar so we we couldn't use it that's such a neat idea when i think about kids um 
tweens and teens who are trying on different identities and, you know, often they dye their hair different colors, get different piercings, wear different clothes, and just are trying to be someone else to figure out mm -hmm. which fits. The idea of putting on a different voice every day is just very appealing to me. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, what's funny is that we have re we really come to identify the voice that she uses as her voice. Mm. Uh, she had figured out a few years ago when we first started doing promotion for the book, about the time we were starting to do some interviews, she figured out how to to change the voice and to kind of blow away those voice settings. <laughs> and she would, we were doing an interview and it was, it was a radio interview. It was being recorded and she was playing around with her device. And all of a sudden she had, had blown away that like the little kid's voice that was programmed with. And instead it was this very deep kind of James Earl Jones <laughs> <laughs> sounding voice. And it was really funny. And she was, you know, she's a stinker. She was doing it just to be, just to, just to see how everyone reacted. Very you know. good. And, but all of a sudden her voice is like, I, I want chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> and, and I found it to be genuinely upsetting. And, and I realized, because there's my, it's my little girl. That's not her little girl mm. voice. And when that happened, I realized, wow, something really important is happening here because I'm now actually identifying her with this electronic voice. Yeah. Um, she decided last summer that she was tired of the little girl voice and she wanted a, a big girl voice. That was how she put it. And so we sat down and went through all the different voices that are on the device and, and you can tweak the pitch and how, how much variation there is in, in pitch and the speed. I mean, you can, you can, you can really customize the voice. And it was this very strange little growing moment where I was helping Skylar find her big girl voice. And I, and I thought in some ways this is the weirdest parenting moment ever. It's like it's like programmable puberty. Uh? And yet and yet on some level this is this is just one more step for a little girl becoming a, a, a not so little girl and, and growing up. Okay. And for her it was a matter of I don't like this little kid voice anymore. I, I don't identify with this little kid voice. I would like an older voice to reflect the, the changes that I'm going really? through. And as upsetting as that is for me as a father, I'm like, you know, let's go back to the little kid no, voice. No, you can't but, hold her back. You can't. But, but watching her grow up like that, even even in such a weird artificial sort of way, you know, I think any I think any parent out there who has a little girl who's you wake up one day like, wow, she's not so much a little girl anymore. And I think they identify with that moment. It, it happens with boys, too, because their voices all of a sudden get really deep. <laughs> and that ha can happen overnight. I wonder if the, the little boys who use these, voice, these voices, I, I wonder if there's like a puberty setting where it, it, where it really widely varies and the, vo the voice on the machine will crack and, and go through all of that. <laughs> I think there should be a puberty setting for, for the little boys, but I, I suspect there's not, but... Um, I think this would be an ideal time to um, to read something from this book, if you wouldn't mind. There's a section that I particularly like, and it fits in really nicely with, with this um, playing with the voices and actually getting to a point with this device. And it's probably one of the earlier ones where Skylar is, is uh, speaking through it at the first time. And if you wouldn't mind reading this section here, I think we'd find it very interesting. And I understand that you've, you have set the, the device so that we can hear what it sounded like. Yeah, I've actually appropriated Skylar's old device and have uh, gone back to the, if, if she came in and heard the little, little girl voice, I might get in trouble, but I've uh, set it back to the voice where, where she used it at the time. So yeah, we'll see if I can actually use the device. Okay, let's see. <laughs> She's much better at it than I am. It's, uh, I, you know, I think that's like any parent, you know, your, your kids are so much better with electronics and 
As Skylar's school year drew to a close, we gradually worked the device into her daily routine. It used a great deal of power through the day, enough so it needed to be charged every night. When we plugged it in after Skylar went to bed, we would often find it set not to the main page, but rather to the spelling page, not an easy one to get to. This page simply had the alphabet laid out, allowing you to manually spell whatever you wanted, and then allow the device to speak your word to the best of its ability. We'd noticed that Skylar frequently spent time on this page. It fascinated her, this ability to take letters that she'd been taught, but which never made much sense, and suddenly be able to do something with them, to put them together in ways that produced words. She spent a lot of time just futzing around on the spelling screen, usually creating words along the lines of A-H-J-F-C-G-V-N-S-M-J. Lately, however, I kept finding something else waiting on the spelling field, left over from the day's experimentation. A few days later, we were sitting in the cafe at my store, waiting for Julie to arrive. I was reading a magazine, and Skylar was munching on a chocolate chip cookie and playing around with the box. She was spelling very slowly, so it wasn't until she was almost done that occurred to me what she was doing. S. C. You. Then an irritated grr and the sound of a deletion. H. U. Y. L. I looked up suddenly, watching her look of concentration as she finished. E. R. Skylar. 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 She repeated it a few times and then looked at me with a chocolate-coated smile. Holy crap, Skylar, I said. Who taught you that? She shrugged and went back to her cookie. The device pushed away for the time being. She had been shown her name all her life, and we knew she could recognize it. But no one had been trying to teach her to spell it, not that I was aware of. As time went on, we watched her spell other words on her device, words that she hadn't been taught, but which she picked up from whatever reading material was sitting in front of her. The device was teaching her to spell. It was giving her the instant gratification of hearing her successes and failures. There are many quiet moments that I'll remember until the very end of my life, long after I've forgotten most everything else. I do believe that the day I watch Skylar spell and then speak her name for the first time will be one of those forever moments. God, I certainly hope so. Lovely. Thank you. Yeah. So um, how old is this big girl now? She is, uh, and when I say this out loud, I, I get that shiver. She's nine years old. She's going to turn 10 in December. Wow. So it's, it's unthinkable to me that she's gotten so old. And it's funny in a lot of ways, and I think because of the device, the little girl that I describe in the book is so different from who she is now. How is she different? You know, I think the, I think the girl that I described in the book had this sort of otherworldly quality mm, to her. Yeah, that comes out. Uh-huh. And she, where she's kind of existing in her own world, and she will kind of come through and visit us in ours, but... She was very lost to us in a lot of ways, and and not necessarily in negative ways, but in ways that, that there, was, there was that separation. And I think because of the device and because of the, the modeling that the device has, has allowed her and the, the, the ability to, to really understand how language and how communication works, she is a very, in a, in a lot of ways, is just indistinguishable from any nine-year-old girl that you, would, that you would meet. She's become very adept at living in a, a neurotypical world. It's satisfying to me because that was that was something that I, I didn't know that if we would ever see. And uh, you know, obviously, she still has 
you know, barriers to communicating, and, and she's always going to have those. You know, I mean, she, these these barriers are in place, but they they don't identify her now. She's she's not she's not defined by those those differences now, and I and I think that's fantastic, and it's it's something that I, I had always hoped that we would see. Mm-hmm. So much of Skylar has in, in being a, a good parent to her, trying to be a good parent to her. A lot of that is, you know, believing in the future for her, but at the same time, really having to let go of that sort of narrative that every parent puts in, puts together in their head. I I have no doubt in my mind that Skylar is going to be a huge success in whatever she wants to do, but unlike a lot of parents, I have no idea. I, I can't see it. You know, it's not obvious, and it's it's going to be surprising, and that's that's nice and it's terrifying at the same time and, and, and to watch her kind of grow into this this regular little girl with regular little girl issues mm-hmm. it yeah it's it's nice and it's scary at the same time so i understand that uh scholars in a summer program now does she go to school all year round this summer program is about a three-week program it's a it's a it's a, basically it's a reading program um that kind of gives gives some of the kids uh, a little bit of extra help with reading and the kids in the special education courses who are doing well in reading will typically go to this to kind of these these classes so then kind of stay on top of that but the rest of the school year she spends part of the day in this special education communication class learning how to use the device and apply it towards her her school curriculum and the rest of her day she spends in a regular age-appropriate classroom and tell me about her mix of friends she has a core group of friends that are in this in this class that she's stayed with and they have they have some very unique ways of communicating that are, are very <laughs> kind of close to the rest of us and then she has she has just her regular neurotypical friends. I think her being in that class and being in her regular third grade and now going into a fourth grade class, you know, it's obvious what being in a, in a class like that does for her. But I think what it does for the rest of the kids in that class is maybe even more valuable, and it's and it's really hard to define. But just exposing them to 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 kids with disabilities and not in a way that. You know, where they're where they're trying to understand or, or pity, but just to be able to see Skylar and see her her friends, her classmates as just another kid with a you know, here's here's and I think with little kids that's easy. You know, kids they 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 kind of evaluate each other and say, okay, well here's the weird thing about you. We'll work around that and we'll play and have a good time. She has a lot of these friends who I mean they look at her and they're like, yeah, she she uses the the speech device, but she's also really good in soccer. They see the big picture with her, and it goes mm-hmm. it's more than just the communication piece. I like to think that that's going to continue. That the older that she gets, she'll still she'll still have friends and she'll still have enemies <laughs> who are. Who are neurotypical kids and who 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 don't feel like there's anything strange about that? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's a pie in the sky thing. But I think for her generation, for kids who are who are being exposed to disability early on, it's, it's it's not an impossible dream. I don't remember having classmates with disabilities until I was in junior high or high school. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I when I was when I was Skyler's age, I, I don't even know what I would have done with that. So you know. I think generationally, maybe maybe it'll be different now. It's certainly different for the kids that she knows. That's the whole rationale for mainstreaming, and it, it certainly makes a lot of sense. You've, you've made an excellent point when you say those kids who see her on the soccer field, they see the, the bigger picture. The bigger picture of who Skylar is is not just the girl who uses this special device to communicate with and that that's isn't that true of all of us you know we all have yeah, we all I, have our strengths and weaknesses and the bigger picture is that we are more than what we appear to be 
exactly and it's actually funny to watch the watch her when she gets into like little scraps with with her neurotypical friends which of, which of course she does they all do mm-hmm. and now even when they're being ugly to each other they're not being ugly to each other about that right. about her disability it's about you know she kicked the ball away from me or she did whatever and then it's nice to watch that yeah you know i think parents conveniently forget how lord of the flies <laughs> it can be on the playground uh. you know <laughs> but you know we all want to pretend like we can you know we can we can go in and protect our kids but the reality is when they're when they're in their social groups they are making their own world and it's a world that we as parents we can try and monitor and we can try and visit but it's you know, it's all theirs. And the idea that she goes into that on more of a, of a, of a fair footing than I would have been af- afraid that she was going to, that's, that's a relief. That's a relief to me. That's great. Well, I was hoping that we'd have an opportunity to actually talk with Skylar, and I'm wondering if she's home. I think I heard her come in. Let me, let me go and, and round her up. Okay. Just a second. Hi, Skylar. Hi. Where, where were you just now? At school? Yeah. We are firing up her device here. You know, her, her language has, her spoken language has also improved dramatically. Um, mm-hmm. oh, she, she's telling me to be quiet now. She has something to say. I have a dog named Max. What kind of dog is it? What color is he? Is he purple? <laughs> is he a purple dog? No. Black. I love black dogs. You like Max? Is he all right? Yeah. How old is Max? Two. Two? Yeah. She's holding up her fingers to the microphone. I don't, the microphone can't. <laughs> is Max a big dog or a little dog? Or an in-between dog? Big. Big. I will say for the record that he is not a very big dog. But then again, I guess when you're nine, <laughs> your, your, your perspective is a little different. What else did you want? You, you seem like you had something you wanted to say. I have a hamster named Sweet. Does the hamster get along with the dog? <laughs> they don't interact very much, do they? That's probably a good thing. <laughs> Yeah. Skylar, I had one more question for you. What? You've seen the cover of your dad's book? Yeah. Do you like the picture of yourself? Yeah. You're bigger than that now, right, aren't you? Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if your dad can send me a photograph of the way you look now. Could you ask him to do that for me? Yeah. That would be great. Maybe a picture of you and Max together. She liked that idea a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I like that idea, too. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much, Skylar. I really appreciate your talking to me. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Well, enjoy the rest of your summer. Bye. Bye now. Thank you, Skylar. <laughs> okay, Rob. Well, this has been wonderful, and I really appreciate your time today. Is um, Can you tell us where we might get, my listeners might get more information about you, your blog, the book, and all of that stuff? The information about the book and, and lots of information about Skylar and what, whatnot can actually be found. I have a website called skylarsmonster.com, and it's the fun spelling that we saddled her with, the S-C-H-U-Y-L-E-R, Skylar's Monster. Well, thanks again. I wish you all the best of luck, and I hope to be following your blog soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having us on. My pleasure. Thanks, Rob. Have a good one. Bye, Skylar. Bye. I'm Annie Fox for Family Confidential. For more information about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And tune in next time when my guest, Wednesday Martin, will discuss her new book, Step Monster, a new look at why stepmothers think, feel, and act the way we do. Till then, happy parenting. Happy parenting.